Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 308, and today's guest is Steve Herod, partner at Juxtapose. Steve is an operator turned venture capitalist. After a very successful run at General Catalyst, he joined Juxtapose earlier this year as a partner to focus on building innovative B2B companies. Juxtapose is an investment firm that partners with experienced entrepreneurs to build category-defining technology companies. The firm has developed over 20 companies over the last 25 years, including companies like Tend, Great Jones, Earned, and others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like how to make big bets and recognize shifts in the tech industry as an investor, Steve's background from academia to how he got his career started in the tech industry, the story of VMware and how he learned how to scale an engineering organization to over 3,000 people, his experience as an investor at General Catalyst and his thesis around making investments in cybersecurity, along with portfolio companies that have scaled like Illumino and Datto what he's up to now at Juxtapose, and how the firm is unique in terms of investing and company creation, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. If you are listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you are interested in the founder journey and lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure you don't miss any future episodes by subscribing to the VentureFizz podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Oh, and please don't forget to leave us a review. That really does help us out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Steve. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because we've got a lot to talk about from building companies and scaling them to uh, lots of great work you've done as a venture capitalist and, of course, what you're up to now. But what I wanted to start off with is when I was looking at your you know, experience as an investor, there was a very just track record that was amazing that told me, hey, you're somebody that has this tendency and experience, which I guess is part of being a venture capitalist, of knowing where technology is going. So, you know, the the Wayne Gretzky analogy of skating to where their puck is going versus where it is. So not looking at a lens of where technology is today, but having this ability to see where it's going to make big bets that turn into, you know, game-changing companies. So how do you have that? Like, how do you ultimately think about those things? Yeah, thanks, Keith. Jumping right in the middle of it all. Um, you know, first of all, I'll say I'm I'm not a good consumer investor. I don't understand that the trends that pop up and that people you know just run to in social media or whatever it might be. Um, so I've always been focused on businesses which move a little bit more methodically. Um, but you know, I'll say probably like a lot of other people, I'm just a super avid consumer of content. I, I love talking with interesting people that I meet. Um, almost every single person I meet, the first question I ask them is like, what's the most painful thing about your job that you'd love to fix? And usually in those answers is a product, a lot of interesting companies that they could build. Um, I also spent a fair amount of time just like in Reddit channels and Telegram channels, you know, really talking to practitioners. And then lastly, you know, my favorite thing to do is just meet super smart, ambitious young people and ask where they're going to work. And I think that's also a pretty good sign of where the world is headed. All right, well, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? <laughs> uh, I have a little bit of a weird background. My my mom is a Cajun uh, growing up in the bayous of Louisiana. So I was born in Louisiana, um, with not a lot of Silicon Valley people <laughs> from there. Um, but I grew up mostly in Dallas. Um, it was a really fun, interesting uh, childhood. My mom was a family counselor, and my dad was a PhD in physics, working actually working in the early days of AI, um, 
So I think family counseling meets physics is a pretty good setup for engineering management, <laughs> where, where I think I uh, ended up in the end. But no, I was always super into curiosity and computer hacking, um, just like a lot of people my age now that kind of really got enamored by that world. So now it makes sense why you studied computer science at UT Austin. And then you continued your studies at, at Stanford. So like, like, what were you researching throughout that process of you know, your master's and your PhD? Yeah, well, I actually did a liberal arts degree at, at UT Austin. I've always, I was an art history major and a chemistry major and a math major, um, but I always oh. use computers in the background. Um, okay. I don't know if other people like this. I really love understanding how things work, like really understanding whether it's a machine or, or something else. And so I just got kind of obsessed with like how a computer works. And it started with like how software works. And then it got to like, how does an operating system work? And then it got to like, how do you build the chips that make the computer work? <laughs> so I kept going like lower and lower and lower. Um, and so I got a chance to go to Stanford and work with a professor there, Mendel Rosenblum, who's just amazing. He was, uh, you know, he knows everything there is to know about computer systems and how it all works. Um, so yeah, I got there and I, I started just working on really understanding uh, how every aspect of the computer system works. And you know, being at Stanford, you're totally surrounded by the entrepreneurial world. Um, I think my same floor of my office had the founders of Yahoo, Google, uh, Arista, you know, Cisco. Actually, I remember one fun story is that I, I had this old crappy desk <laughs> that I used and we opened up the drawers one day and we found the original plans for Sun Microsystems first workstation. So no way history to start all these really cool companies. And that really obviously influenced me quite a bit. And it, like, so did you always know, hey, like I'm obviously getting great studies here. When I see like that PhD, I think someone's going to be potentially in academia. But did you always know, you know, private market was where you you, you were going to be? I think so. I love, I love, I thought I might be a professor. I think I love teaching and I, I love great teachers, but, uh, but no, Stanford's a pretty, uh, a pretty business focused PhD program. I guess you know, some, some universities would say too much so, um, but no, there's, there's this, this rich idea of like, it's great to have cool, big ideas, but it's even cooler if you can make them have an impact and get out there and, and sell them. And so that's, we'll talk about later, but I was working on the technology that became VMware. And from the start, it was seen as a you know, very commercial opportunity from the, all the lab mates and from uh, from my professor. All right. Well, before we get into that story, let's talk about like how did you get your career started coming out of Stanford? Uh, you know, it's, it it trains you very well, obviously, and and just doing hands on work. Also, you're networked amazingly, just because Silicon Valley is full of Stanford grads, either from the business school or from the technology side. Um, you know, my particular lab, we a lot of people are going to a bunch of the interesting companies at the time. It's a, probably a good lesson that some of them don't exist anymore. But I went over to Silicon Graphics, which was like the Google of the time, literally in the building that Google now is. Um, you know, Jurassic Park had just come out. I'm super dating myself. <laughs> but Jurassic Park had come out and like dinosaurs were on film and it was all done by these computers. Um, so anyway, I worked for Silicon Graphics. I then did a, a pretty very cool startup trying to take on Intel in the in the microprocessor world. Uh, and all along, my, my office mates were then going on to start VMware. And so I eventually hopped back over there. Um, so that was kind of the path, Silicon Graphics to uh, this really cool company, Transmeta, and then ultimately over to VMware. Well, so a fun fact that I learned in preparation for this podcast was Transmeta was the largest first day IPO before Google. It it was amazing. Yeah, it was, uh, it was at the hot time right before crash number one of my life. There's been several stock market crashes. Um, 
but no, we did very well. It was, it was also one of the first kind of stealth companies. We made it seem very secretive. Uh, my claim to fame, I, I got put into engineering management very quickly, but my claim to fame was that Linus Torvalds, the inventor of Linux, uh, worked for Transmeta and somehow he reported into me, which was like- Really? That's a fun fact. Work. Yeah, I'm like, am I supposed to manage the smartest guy I've ever met in my life? Um, but anyway, that was it was just a great company, very stealthy, um, made a pretty big impact. Arguably, we made uh, you know a lot of what goes into laptops today. Uh, but it was it was a really fun first real job. And I wanted to ask you because it was phrased as code morphing software. I'm like, what what, what is that? <laughs> hey, yeah, I mean, so the way these computer processors work today is like you that everything's in hardware. You design these chips, uh, then you send them off to a fabricator, and they become very yeah, they're, they're hardware, they're stuck. Um, we, we thought, what if you just built this really, really, really simple, basic piece of hardware, and then did all the smart stuff and software on top of it. And the, the software on top of it was supposed to sort of look at what the computer was supposed to do, turn it into these really low level instructions for this processor and kind of move on. Um, and the, the ultimate idea was if you put a lot more stuff in software, the chips could be smaller and actually a lot lower power which obviously, as you know, is like key to phones and to laptops. Um, so it was a really, really good idea. This is, I mean, this was in the in the early 2000 and in the sort of late 90s. So it was before laptops were anywhere near where they are right now. Um, so yeah, it, was, it was super fun. And uh, I learned a lot about things I never thought I'd have to know about, like manufacturing of chips. <laughs> it's, that's hard. Software is easier. All right, let's talk about VMware because obviously that's a, an amazing success story. So you, you know, gave us a little bit of a glimpse that you were, you know, working with that while you're still at Stanford. So I guess talk about, you know, the evolution of that company to where it scaled. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a little bit of a nerdy company that if you're not a data center person, a lot of people have run some PC software on their Mac and they think that's what VMware is, um, which is, it's cool and it's very helpful, but yeah, you know, the core of the business is really getting into these data centers, these giant places where the clouds run and where companies spend a lot of money and power and time. Um, and so like just at the very top level, uh, I'll give I'll give a little, maybe TMI, but maybe it'll be useful. Um, when we were working on it at Stanford, we called it Project Disco because we were like, what is Disco? It's this cool idea from the 70s that we thought could make a comeback. <laughs> and that's actually what virtualization was. It was a thing that really existed in the IBM early days of computer science. Um, and it was very useful and did a lot of stuff, but somehow it disappeared in the 80s and 90s and then the rise of the, of the servers. So anyway, it was called Project Disco. And we thought, hey, virtualization is going to be super useful for a lot of stuff now. Let's see if we can do it on this modern Intel-based uh, servers that are out there. And so the vision, a lot of people say, I didn't know what I was doing when I started a company. We actually had a very clear vision. Like we think virtualization could be in every data center running every cloud. And uh, and sure enough, that's kind of what's happened. So it's it's one of those stories where you actually have a pretty clear vision on where you want to go and, and you get there. But uh, but anyway, that's that's sort of the, the idea was how do we put the software in that makes how it makes servers more efficient, makes everyone move faster, lets you run whatever software much more quickly. And it has, it's kind of the Swiss army knife of technology. It lets you do a lot of stuff much more easily. Well, how did you learn how to scale an engineering organization? Like you, you know, you talked about, you had experience at Transmeta of, you know, the company went public. So you started to gain that leadership chops there, but this is you know, scaling a, or an engineering organization from what I discovered to like 3000 plus people. It's, you know, and the company was obviously much larger, but that was 
the engineering team. So, so how did you learn how to you know operate at that level of scale? <laughs> Mostly through a lot of mistakes, <laughs> but but it was also um, you know I think it was a a very good fast growing environment with very very good people. That that's where you can always learn from it. Um, but no, I, I was an individual engineer when I started my career, and then I, I I guess I had people skills, which is sometimes a low bar in engineering. <laughs> so I was able to run a small group, and I guess I did that okay. And so I got the next size group, and so it was just a series of kind of promotions or or just growing with the company. I, I'd say the biggest lesson I learned is is just around communication. I, I love trying to communicate effectively, but I think I think Paul Moritz, who was the CEO for a while at VMware, just an amazing person, also. He really drilled into me that like each order of magnitude your group grows sort of doubles or triples the number of times you have to communicate each and every point. And so, you know, you have to come up with a, a long-term vision and repeat it over and over and over again and repeat it in different ways that appeal to different minds. Uh, you have to repeat it through different forums. So some people learn one-on-one, -on -one, some people prefer reading uh, presentations, some prefer a podcast. Um, so, I, I mean, it sounds sort of trite, but I think just First of all, having the plan and then finding the most effective ways to really make sure everyone understands it. And then when you have super high performance people, you know, you're not telling them what to do. You're more telling them the goal and then helping shape them get that way. Um, and so I would just say I, I had a great set of mentors as well as just really great engineers and other managers around me and above me and everywhere um, that, that helped me kind of grow into that. But it, it sure, I, I'm a very people person. I think, as I said, my mom was kind of a family counselor. I think when you just have that many people, everyone's going through hard things in life at different times. And it's I, I take them all very personally, just getting to know people. And so I think the people side of things is often overlooked as you're spending so much time on the project side of it. But I think that's what builds these cultures that can achieve great things. How did that translate into, like, I know 3,000 people, you aren't interviewing everyone, but I'm just saying more of a macro look of how would you go about, you know, hiring engineers? Um, you know, if you are looking for those top performers, like, like what was your, your process that you'd run through? You know, everyone has their questions or their approaches to doing it. Um, I'd say the most effective thing I ever learned is um, a lot of engineers aren't great interviewers. You know, I think confrontation can feel weird or, or you... Maybe you choose not to press too hard on something, or maybe you hear what you want to hear instead of what they say. I'd say probably the most innovative thing I've done across interviewing across the many different jobs has been I almost always do paired interviews. So I'd like to have two people interviewing one person at the same time. It, it gives each of them a break. It lets them both hear something. You're, you kind of feel a little more brave when you have someone by you to ask that harder question. And I think, frankly, I think it leads to a better experience for the interviewee. Uh, you know, you're not getting asked, tell me about yourself, you know, <laughs> five times during the course of a day. Um, so it doesn't sound groundbreaking, but I found a lot of effectiveness in getting better questions and a better experience through paired interviews. Not groundbreaking, but not, uh, not common. Like it very rare. Is, yeah, I don't I've know why it, it seems to, I mean, it's, it's worked very well for me. Maybe someone will listen to this podcast and <laughs> start doing it. All right. So uh, if my, knowledge is correct because i do remember like so emc acquired vmware and then spun it out to go public is that am i right there? yeah it might be the most bizarre set of circumstances but um yes emc bought vmware then they spun out a part of vmware to be on the public market and then dell bought emc <laughs> anyway right. you can there's probably business books written on the many different financial mechanisms at play and now we're sitting on the cusp of the acquisition of 
that entity by Broadcom for almost $70 billion. So it's become, it's been a series of things going on, but that acquisition is a, a really big deal for the industry if it gets through all the regulators. Wow. Yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that. That's amazing. All right. So uh, how did you get involved at General Catalyst as a VC? Yeah, so I was at, I was at um, VMware for about 13 years. Uh, part of I, I was in the CTO role, uh, which part of that is acquiring companies and, and finding things like that. So I, I think during my time, we bought somewhere around 25 different companies, including a, a billion dollar one at the very end of, of the time there. And um, I kept meeting the founders and I kept meeting the venture capitalists around the table and they all looked pretty happy. <laughs> so it looked like a pretty interesting thing. And I, I just, I had been at VMware so long, I wanted to really challenge myself again. And I, I just thought back to the early days of Transmeta and of VMware and just how fun those earliest stages of a company are. And so I just I sort of said, hey, it's a good time for the next phase of the career. And I wanted to go into venture capital. Um, fortunately, a lot of interest in VMware was very, hot at the time, as was data center technology. So I think a lot of venture firms were interested in having some knowledge around that space. Um, I looked at a lot of the well-known existing firms around the Bay Area, um, but actually the founder of VMware, Diane Green, told me I should meet this really interesting firm called General Catalyst, which at the time was quite small and mostly thought of as a Boston firm. But I joined um, Hamat Tanasia, who runs the whole thing now in Palo Alto, and uh, and I'm super glad I did. I think it's it's been a really fun 10 years that I had there uh, after VMware. So the portfolio that you built while at General Catalyst, it's, I mean, there's a lot of companies that all have scale, IPO, exit. I mean, it's it's, it's pretty amazing. So what were you, like, it, it seemed like a, a majority of what you were doing was more in the, the cybersecurity world, right? Yeah. Yeah, some some VC firms are very opportunistic and it and, and it works very well. They they are about keeping an open mind and meeting amazing founders as they come in the door and reading the founders and sort of making those investments. Um, the other type of investor is very thematic and picks an area and and really tries to look for the people and the companies that fit some thesis. Um, I, I'm definitely more of the latter. Um, so I, I sort of came in with a pretty strong understanding of where the enterprise was and where cloud computing was going and and specifically had a very uh i'd say very in, big interest in cybersecurity as the <laughs> the gift that keeps giving unfortunately we've never solved the problem and it tends to get hard um uh, there's just a lot of really good reasons it's been an evergreen area for interesting startups and so i really wanted to make sure general catalyst had a strong play in that space um but yeah it has a lot of traits that made me Think it would be a very good place to be doing early stage investing and i, I could go into those if you like but it's it's certainly yeah, proven to be the case for 30 years now and probably will continue to be let's talk about some examples of the, some of the companies that you worked with yeah i mean uh th there's been several that have had pretty nice exits already um i think actually my very first investment is this company called illumio uh, which is based in the bay area they're a multi-billion dollar company at this point um and, and again, all this stuff is pretty nerdy in the grand scheme of things, but they provide a technology that which seemed just super important, which is called, it's called segmentation. But the way to think about this is like, think of a submarine that's out there in the wild. And you know, a submarine, if you've never seen one, if it gets a breach and water gets into it, you know, the whole thing sinks to the bottom, except that they have these fancy doors that you can close and they lock the water in the area that they breached. So in that world, a submarine is segmented so that something bad happening over here doesn't take out the whole ship. Mm -hmm. And so the, the same concept can apply in the computing world with security. In 
a lot of the world today, if if someone breaks into your your company, they can see everything and get to all of the crown jewels that you might have there. With segmentation, it's basically a way of coordinating off all parts of the data center. And so if something gets in, it can only see and get to a limited amount of it. So again, to, to somebody who hasn't been in this world, it sounds pretty obvious that you should have you should always do that. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's why we have doors and houses and everything else. But it's uh, it's kind of novel in the computing world. And so Illumio has been a pioneer in bringing segmentation to the world, and it's proven to be a very useful and very popular uh, commercially way of protecting your systems. And then an another company, uh, Datto, that. That was a company that went public. So they were they were cyber or security for MSPs, right? Yeah. And again, this is also a pretty nerdy world. But uh, in the world of small businesses, you don't usually have security experts yourself. You hire some consultant to help you. And, and those are called managed service providers or also managed security service providers, MSSP. Lots of acronyms. <laughs> but uh, the short of it is that these companies are the ones that protect all of the main street businesses and they protect you know the restaurant running over here and, and all these different services. And we just realized that a lot of companies were using these MSSPs, but maybe they didn't have the best tools on earth for protecting companies. And so Austin McCord is this just stunningly amazing founder who in his literally in his basement in Connecticut started Datto and he uh, you know, made it into it sold recently as a six billion dollar company. So it's a it went from kind of zero to there. Um, yeah, so I feel <laughs> super fortunate. My first two investments at General Catalyst were Illumio and Datto. I was like, wow, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, no wonder why these VCs are so happy looking on the other side when you're at VMware. Turns out it's not that easy all the time, but those are two great uh, first companies to get involved with. That's awesome. All right, and then Signal FX. So that company was acquired by Splunk for a billion plus. I mean, there's more, but we don't have to go through each one. But uh, yeah, I mean, all of these, all of these are, I think, for me at least, are understanding rough categories. Like, hey, this is as we talked about the start. This is where the world seems to be headed, um, and then meeting amazing people who seem to have a solution. And I just maybe back to one point. I, I think the sweet spot for startups is three years out. It's not ten years out, and it's not one year out. <laughs> so. Almost all these companies were, I guess you're looking at the, I could ruin the analogy by saying the puck's like 50 yards down the, the rink or something, but it's, uh, I, I do think it's really not just what they're building and who's building it, but like, what's the time frame for the product launch and you don't want it to be too early and you don't want it to be too late. That timing is really important. A thousand percent, uh, especially with what you're doing, so like timing wise, I'm sure I shouldn't say this because this is presumptuous, but you, there may have been some investments that, man, the market just wasn't there yet. Then seven years later, I mean, it's like virtualization. It was already existed. I didn't know that that technology existed back in, what'd you say, the seventies that, yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, so it's just timing is so key. No, it is. And and you'll see whether it's, I mean, you've seen so many fads in investing. Uh, quantum computing has always been the, the big thing that's right around the corner, but it's been around the corner for 10 plus years. Um, I think it's a great idea. It'll approach us at some point, but if we're doing a startup in that space, it's super difficult, just as another example. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, what are you up to now? Um, so I had a great 10 years with General Catalyst. I loved it. I was doing all types of investing, um, but I, uh, I, I, all three of my kids are now in college. I'm, I'm a I think I'm supposed to call it a free bird now, not an empty nester. <laughs> but uh, is that what it's so, called? So okay, I've got yeah, I've got one more uh, a senior in high school, so I'll be 
a free bird next year. <laughs> yeah, try try either phrase, see what suits you. Um, but part of it was just saying, hey, you know, I've, I've got another chunk of time in my career that I really want to do something interesting. I, the first wave of my life was operating companies and running big engineering teams. The second was just investing in numbers of companies, 30 plus companies being on a number of boards. And I realized I, I liked something much more towards the operational side. So I wanted to actually go back to starting companies and, and just getting really, really deep into something myself. And so I found Juxtapose, which is this really cool creation-oriented investment firm uh, based in New York. And all they do is, is start companies and they do it with a very, very deep mindset and do very, very few things, but go very deep into it. Um, so I'm, I'm six months into there, but I'm, I'm uh, very excited by the team and by what I'm working on. Because it's, it's, it's not like there's a term out there, venture studio, right? But this, this seems different. Like, I don't even know what you would define a venture studio, but it seems like there's the team at Juxtapose has this idea and they start to formulate it in-house then they partner up with a CEO from the outside. So I don't, I'm, I guess maybe I should ask you the question, like the process that they run to, to form in these companies. No, you're saying it right. And, and I would say there's not really a term for this. I, I've met a lot of different types of investment firms and you hear about studios and incubators and all these different things. Uh, this is a firm 100% creating our own companies, uh, getting them going and then bringing in excellent CEOs after we've you know, figured out the business plan and where things are going to go. And so it's a really unique mix of those things. Uh, we start with thousands of ideas that you potentially could start a company around and have a lot of deep process and intellectual work that goes into whittling that down into that one or two companies we start per year. And that has an entire dedicated, very smart team that's doing all types of diligence and all types of analysis a lot of deep user research, a lot of prototyping. Um, so I just haven't seen this before. It's it's so much focus. Some would say it's like a private equity amount of focus on the diligence and really de-risking something. But it's around new ideas and company creation, which is much more like venture. So it's a, a really unique mix of the two. And uh, we've created some pretty interesting companies so far, and I'm hoping to join and create several myself. Yeah, like what are some of the examples that have been formed already? Yeah, and a lot of the really interesting work so far has been in uh, the healthcare space or even in the uh, tech-enabled services. Uh, if, if you're in New York, there's a, a, actually a dental service called TIMD, which is a really modern way of, of scheduling online and really thinking about what the experience that all of us hate could be if you did it right. <laughs> um, and they're doing extremely well, and they, they've really taken off quite well. Um, they're doing some pretty interesting work around um, revenue cycle management, which is a way of helping people collect their bills, but we're using some of the more modern uh, AI techniques to do that. And I just mentioned AI for the very first time, which might be a record for- I, I was actually holding it in myself, Steve. I was, I, I, there was many times <laughs> in this conversation that I almost threw it out, but I was like, nope, I'm going to save this till further down the conversation. 30 minutes in, I breached the AI word, so I, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tend, I think is a great example of a category that just hasn't been disrupted. No one has ever said, man, I can't wait to go to the dentist tomorrow. Yet, <laughs> exactly. why is it, it doesn't have to be that way. So it's just, it's good that people are rethinking industries. And there's always a tech component to this, but I think, I think there's just a lot of, if you go to almost industry and say, what do I not like about this? There's an opportunity to rebuild that. And that's a lot of what we focus on. So what are you going to be focused on in terms of the business creation side? 
Um, most of what the company's done so far has been tech-enabled services and healthcare and, and that area. Um, obviously, I'm coming in with a software background and uh, really a B2B software background. So I'm going to come in, not surprisingly, and I have a lot of pent-up uh, curiosities and ideas around cybersecurity. So uh, I think the first uh, company or two that that I'll work on will be somewhere at the convergence of, I'll say it again, of uh, AI and cybersecurity in particular. Um, and I think there's just a lot of opportunities that um, I'm really digging in on and working with the team on. All right. So you just opened up the floodgates. Uh, AI. Yeah, okay. Nice. So, so, <laughs> so there is so much uh, out there, right? And um, I tend to be an optimist. I don't want to get too gloomy and doomy, but um, when I think of some of the potential negative downside of AI and what that can mean to security and enterprises, it's, 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 I mean, you would know way better than me as a sideline player would know. Uh, but th there's got to be companies to fend, to defend against what's coming. Yeah, and I, maybe I'll step back. You know, my my dad actually in the early 80s worked on artificial intelligence. And um, I even have the old newspaper articles on how it was going to kill all the jobs and how you know the world could end. Um, so No way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's doing this this thing called expert systems, which would replace human brains and some assembly lines, basically. Um, but but I guess I would just say I'm a little bit, you know, there's always the highs are never quite as high and the lows are never quite as lows across technologies. And I think I have a, maybe a little more even keeled view of the good and the bad of AI, perhaps. Um, but I think there's a lot of, there's been some great advances, obviously. I think there's some really good upside. Um, I think it's very limited in what it could do. It's not going to change everything at the level that people are saying. And I also think it's, you know, it's got certainly some big downsides, um, but I think there's ways to deal with that. And so I'm, I'm, a, I'm overall an optimist on technology in general, if handled right. There's no question we're in peak hype cycle of AI. Uh, if you remember two years ago, crypto was going to change the world and Web3 and yeah, these, these come and go a little bit, but I think this is here to stay in, in some capacity for sure. I would say just switching to the cyber side of things, um, it's pretty interesting. Just like the entire history of cybersecurity is the cat and mouse game. And sometimes the, the mouse gets more clever and then the cat has to catch up. And sometimes the cat's pretty good and the mouse is in trouble. Um, AI will be a tool on both sides. Um, it's super easy for someone to go and impersonate Keith and be you and online transactions and know more about you than ever. That's pretty scary. On the flip side, AI is fantastic at searching out signals and finding things that look weird and alerting you to them. And so on the defender side, it's going to be very, very helpful. We now have more data than ever to be looking at, and it's going to give us a chance at really turning that into the important protections that we should have put in place. Um, so I, anyway, I think it's going to be used on both sides, and I think it'll be yet another tool in the arsenal. Yeah, I mean, things like healthcare. I mean, what AI can do in that sector is just phenomenal. Yeah, I think every VC firm has probably had their AI summit where they go through sector by sector and look at the most promising and, and least promising areas. But I, I think we should all be really, really excited about how it could help us on the healthcare front. Um, everything from developing new drugs to being better at looking at our x-rays and our MRIs to find problems, um, all the way through how we deal with you know records and, and doing future approval of drugs. It's across the board, just a fantastic tool. Right, so back to Juxtapose. So the firm uh, has its own fund, as any VC firm would, and it gets to a certain point. Then outside investors also, you know, are part of you know the the capital raise too, right? Yeah, yeah. And back to that Juxtapose. Um, so it's a it's a 
$300 million fund that we raised in 2021. Um, so we've, we have about $450 million that we manage, which is uh, quite a bit for, that is the largest fund for a dedicated company creating strategy. That means we have a lot of ability to really start and back our own companies quite well. And so that's what we do. We use this fund to build and invest in our businesses and to, to grow our team so that we can do even better diligence about starting them. Uh, we typically you know, run and fund the company up until kind of a series A time. And then we, we have some really good capital partners, including you know, funds that I've worked with in the past that would come in and help us take the company to the next stage. But yeah, we're, we're a dedicated fund around creating companies. And I, I think we are the largest one that exists. And how do you go about finding the CEO that will help run the company? Yeah, this is kind of a cool story. My my world in venture has been, you know, you find whichever founder was there and they're the ones starting the company. And typically they, they're the CEO for a long time or, or maybe not. But uh, in, in the venture world, someone comes to you with their company and their idea and you go with it. It's not till much later in the process that you kind of realize, hey, we're pretty big now and we need to bring in a established CEO who is the chief scale. Um, so what's kind of cool about our model is we we actually, by starting the company, we de-risk quite a bit of it. And what that's allowed us to do is to go out and find very experienced CEOs who have done all this before. And they love the idea of being a founder, which they become, but they they necessarily don't like the the zero to one part to use that phrase, the, the very, very earliest stages. So I think we make a pretty compelling offer to, to very experienced CEOs, which is come be a founder of your own startup, uh, run the show. But by the way, here's a ton of research, uh, some customer feedback, some early progress, and even thoughts on how to build and scale the team for you. Um, so the end result is, you know, is really bringing in just the best CEOs that are coming in much earlier than you might usually get into these companies. Yeah, I mean, I think for qualified CEOs, it's a phenomenal opportunity. Like you said, it's so de-risked. It's it already has some legs, and you, you know, coming in to operate and scale. Yeah, and I think I'm really excited about. It. We're we've done about 13 companies so far, and the CEOs that have come in in turn become our very best advocates for. Hey, very experienced person, like you should consider this model. It's it's kind of the best blend between creating a company but also going to one that has its legs already. So how, like, how do you start to formulate ideas? Like, do you, you know, cause as a VC, you're meeting these people, you're understanding what they're working on, you know, so how do you create your own ideas and to start to build something? Like, are you still meeting with people and trying to bring them into your idea to start to build a company around? Like, like, or that company, yeah, I mean, that, these early stages. It feels kind of mysterious, doesn't it? But it's, it's almost what you would think, which is there's a million sources of inspiration for companies. Uh, my favorite thing we have at Juxtapose is this observations list. And whenever you're out in the wild and you're like, here's something really weird, or here's an observation about a company that should exist, we just send it to our team. Uh, and you know, we collect all of these observations and all of these different ideas in a giant funnel. And as you can imagine, we we couple that with dedicated brainstorming sessions around certain areas. And it becomes this giant corpus of potential areas. And again, we we have a super talented team that's doing a combination of understanding the space, understanding competitors, thinking about where the puck is going back to your earlier point. And then we'll steadily turn this giant funnel into a smaller one, into a smaller one, into a smaller one, and uh, and ultimately come up with the things that we want to, we call it green lighting, just like a movie studio. Um, you know, it culminates after quite a bit of work and let's green light and go for this idea. Um, and that's, that that is the fun process. But 
no, I think you can get all of us get inspiration from just anything we're seeing, something we've we've run into, a person that we spoke with, and uh, you never know where the perfect idea is going to come from. Well, that, it'll be fun to look at the observation list ten years from now and see the ideas that did not get the green light yet were something that somebody else had the same idea and built a company around. Be like, oh, we you know we thought of. Um, you know, online grocery shopping, right? <laughs> exactly. I think every VC on earth has what they would call their anti-portfolio list. Yes, the anti-portfolio. Yeah. Maybe an anti-observation list or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, perfect. Now, um, one of the things that you have experience in that I think is uh, can be a challenge for certain individuals is commercializing academic research. Uh, so, so what advice would you have for you know, people that are working on something that they think is very meaningful, that has, you know, an opportunity, but how do I even get started to commercialize this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of, um, yeah, obviously a lot of great companies have spun out of uh, university research and on the positive side, universities are just great for, for a couple of things. You know, one, they give you the time to think bigger and to think broader. Um, actually the case of VMware, if you think about it, it gave me a chance to spend time on history also. A lot of people joining tech have no idea what happened in the 70s or 80s, um, but we actually read all the papers around IBM virtualization. And so this, this notion of what's worked in the past, coupled with the time and smart people to work on new ideas, I think is a super potent mix. Um, I, I think that the challenge with being in a university is that you're not in the middle of the commerciality of, you know, that's a great idea, but are people going to need it in three years? How much would they pay for it? What are the competitors? So you need to mix uh, the harsh realities with the inspirational ideas. And I think that's that's probably the, the single best advice I would always give is, you know, take your great idea, but really challenge it with someone who's in the middle of, you know, actually selling software or, or talking to the potential people that might buy it. And so schools like Stanford do a great job of combining their MBA school with their engineering school to sort of really bring those two things together. But I, I think uh, I think a lot of venture capitalists now are really realizing, and they have for a while, that this is such a potent place for ideas. So we're seeing incubators that are doing nothing but approaching university researchers. We've seen investment funds that do nothing but sort of get graduating PhD students and try to get to them. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's that great idea meets commercial realities or the realities of needing to fund this research. It's it's where that meets when you're going to get to create companies. So what do you think are some of the underrated universities for this type of research out there? You know, everyone knows Stanford, MIT, but like what, 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 like Austin McCord, like Rochester Institute of Technology, RIT, right? So where are these under the, yeah. the radar, great companies of great thinkers, I'm not great, great academic institutions with great thinkers? I, I mean, I, I, I'm super fortunate to have gone to Stanford, but I, I really do think like, especially these days, the great ideas and people are all over the world, not just all at universities and, and many not even at universities. Um, you can just do so much so quickly. Austin's my favorite story though. He he would be the first to tell you that he was like a C student at best. And that was kind of by, <laughs> by getting a little bit lucky. Um, but I think it's, it's just for these companies, I think it's more about just like a super deep uh, ethos around hard work, a super, uh, I think being surrounded by interesting people just makes you a better person overall. And I think uh, being challenged to just go and do something as opposed to just read about it is really important. So I, I, I mean, maybe it's a little controversial, but a lot of the highest end schools, you get people that haven't been as challenged as some of the other schools where you've had to just you know grit your way into it. And I think 
that's why you've seen so many great CEOs and founders, not from kind of a quote name brand school. But I think there's just amazing state engineering schools in particular, where you see some of the best engineers and future company starters. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in Massachusetts, you have UMass Lowell and like Rich Miner, like came from there. And now that one of the schools is named, yeah, one of the schools is named after him. So uh, obviously says a lot. Um, All right. Three apps you can't live without. Oh, the apps I can't live without. That's a good one. I was an early obsessive with Evernote. I'm not sure who else was, but um, I hate to say it, but now I use Apple Notes for my entire life, and I actually, I actually totally love it. Um, the other, the other apps I'm kind of crazy about, and this is like super nerdy, but I run a, I like a lot of people, I have to run my uh, IT department for my my dad <laughs> for relatives. And, <laughs> Actually, I use a lot of the tools. This is like full circle. A lot of the tools that MSPs use, I now try to use to help my family run their technology. <laughs> so I don't know if that's, boy, that probably sets me up as an extra nerdy person. But um, um, And then lastly, I, I do love gaming. So I use Steam for a lot of, uh, I, I'll call that an umbrella app for getting to a lot of really cool games. <laughs> All right. How about a good podcast or book recommendation? Ooh, uh yeah, I'm an avid reader and podcaster. Um, uh, let's see, my favorite podcast, I'm, I'm super into one called Inner Cosmos, with is, is about the brain. It's by a, an amazing guy named David Eagleman, uh, who I'm just super intrigued with the brain, both for health reasons, both my parents have had serious brain issues, but also just like, it's everything and none of us really know how it works. So if you want to learn more about the brain, that's a fun one. Um, books, I'm kind of obsessed with historic fiction. I don't know if anyone else is as much as I am, but I know there's an author called Ken Follett who wrote some just amazing books and he has a new one coming out, but it's a great combination of history, uh, engineering, love stories, and and evil people. <laughs> so I, I'd say <laughs> Pillars of Earth is my single favorite book of all time. It has everything for everybody. All right. Now that you're a free bird, what else do you like to do outside of, you know, outside of work? What do you like to do? Um, I, I am... I actually love swimming. I'm a distance swimmer um, and I like it for the exercise, but I actually really like it. There's kind of nothing else you can do, but think when you're swimming, it's like, it's like pretty boring for a lot of people, but I usually start swimming with like some idea in my head that I want to solve and look up an hour later. And I've at least given it as much dedicated brain thought as possible. Um, So I love doing that. I'm actually planning on an Alcatraz swim. That's the big thing in the Bay area is like swim from Alcatraz to the shore. So I'm going to do that. How far is that? That's about two miles, um, but it's cold and choppy, and sometimes there's like jellyfish and sharks and stuff like that. So, As you say, I think there's sharks, right? <laughs> yeah, you get a spotter, and I think you, I don't know, I'll read up on the safety part of it. But no, anyway, I love swimming, and, and I just love being with friends at outdoors things out in California. Very, very cool. Well, Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, obviously, all the great companies you built, and you know what you've been doing as an investor, and now. Uh, company creation again, which is exciting and obviously all the great advice. No, thanks, Keith. I really like how you do this podcast. It's good to see behind the scenes and hear the story of all these amazing people we all get to work with. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.